Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 147 of Dogcast Radio. In this show, we have an interview about the exciting new dog sport, Tribal, and how it's becoming established in the UK. The idea of it is that the dog uses its nose and shoulders, or shoulders, to push um, eight large exercise balls into a goal. And we have the Dogcast Radio News and more. But before all that, we're going to talk terrier taming. Dawn Antoniak Mitchell is a wonderful dog trainer who's been on the show before to talk about pet estate planning. That's making provision for your pet in the event of your death or you being ill. And she also gave us the benefit of her advice about training your dog doorbell manners. Dawn is passionate about helping us to understand our dogs to get the best out of them. And to that end, she's the author of Terrier-Centric Dog Training, From Tenacious to Tremendous. First of all, we started off with the question of what breeds count as terriers. For example, do they all have terrier in their name? When we look at what it means to be a terrier, and the way that I've defined terrier in my book is terrier uh, breeds are those breeds that were initially developed to kill some type of vermin, Um, be it fox, be it rats. Uh, the traditional terrier breeds were all bred to kill some other type of animal. Uh, there are some breeds that have been used historically for those purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Danish mouse dog, uh, which has a tremendously wonderful name in Danish, which I'm not even going to try <laughs> to slaughter. Um, the, the miniature schnauzers were used as ratters in stables. Uh, the Brussels griffon. These dogs don't have terriers you know, the word terrier in their name. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that is that there are some terrier breeds, uh, like the Tibetan terrier, uh, for example, which are not, in fact, true terriers. And the word terrier comes from Latin terra, meaning earth, because most of the traditional um, hunting-type terriers, working terriers, actually had to go underground or, you know, in rocks and places where, uh, the vermin that they were used to eradicate actually lived. So um, most of them do go underground to hunt, mm-hmm. but they can hunt above ground as well. Yeah. So not every terrier is actually a terrier, and there are plenty of terriers out there that don't have the word terrier in their name. <laughs> okay. Um, even the ones with terrier in, in the name that, you know, sort of is, is the giveaway <laughs> for most of us. Um, that it's a diverse group, isn't it? Cause it is the, is the smallest, the Yorkshire terrier and the biggest is the Airedale. Is that right? Uh, yes. In the, in the, what we consider our traditional, yeah, um, yeah. terrier group. Yes. Mm. Yes. And we do have, you know, there are like the bull terrier, the pit terrier, uh, the pit bull terrier. And those terrier breeds really came from uh, the bull and terrier crosses, meaning the bulldog mastiff type crosses. And that's a case where there's terrier in the name and they aren't exactly uh, the traditional working terrier. They were bred more for the, the pit fights, um, bull baiting, the baiting sports. So their purpose was a little bit different and their characteristics, their instinctive characteristics are more in line with the, um, the bulldogs and the mastiffs. So we do have, um, 
quite a diversity in, you know, what we call terrier. And then, too, in the size, in the appearance. Um, and that really reflects the uh, breeds were originally used for. Mm. You know, what were they used to kill? Now, for example, the Yorkshire Terrier actually used to be a pretty good-sized dog. Mm. Um, it could be up to 40 pounds, and they were ratters. But around the time um, the Industrial Revolution came around and we had more urbanization, people were moving into the cities more, um, people started to have a little more disposable income, particularly late 1800s, the Victorian period, um, when people could start keeping dogs as pets, then they started uh, playing with them, so to speak. And, for example, the Yorkshire Terrier that people brought with them back from the farms uh, into the cities, and then as they um, began to want a smaller dog more suited for urban areas, they started breeding selectively and breeding uh, the physical characteristics of the dog down to the small Yorkies that we that we today. Um, Manchester Terriers is another example. Hmm. Uh, but for the most part, our working terriers are pretty much what they were when they were first developed, with a couple of exceptions. Yeah, yeah. So you, you obviously admire and, and, and like the terriers from the sound of it, and you, you live with a terrier, don't you? I actually live with three of them. Oh, right. Okay. I have, <laughs> yes, I am owned by three Jack Russell Terriers, hmm. uh, two little females that are only about four months apart in age. Hmm. Uh, the first one we got is a eight-week-old puppy. The second one was of rescue. We got her at 10 months. Um, she had a start in a, in a pet shop, and then the folks that adopted her worked very long hours, so they put her in a crate as a puppy and kept her somewhat sedated and with little pee pants on because they couldn't be home to let her out to go potty enough. Oh. And then they finally decided that they really couldn't keep her. So they gave yeah. her up to rescue and I took her. And then um, my third one is a male who we adopted from the Humane Society. And he was about two years old. He was an intact male uh, stray. Hmm. And it took about three months for the Humane Society to actually be able to catch him. <laughs> he, he was very good at what he did. Um, and then uh, I adopted him from, from the Humane Society when they put him out on the floor. So I actually have three of them, and I absolutely adore them. Yeah. Absolutely adore them. I think if I were ever to be reincarnated as some type of dog, I would probably come back as, as a Jack Russell Terrier. <laughs> well, you can't get higher praise than that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, obviously you, you, you know what you're talking about with terriers. Um, was it your own terriers that sort of led you to write this book? Or was it sort of the, the experiences of, of trying to help people within the classes that you teach? Or was it a mixture of both? What led you to write the book? It was a mixture of both. Mm. Um, I had done my research, uh, I think, as probably as deeply as a person can before actually uh, bringing a terrier into your home. I have a lot of friends that own terriers. I've been showing dogs for 25 plus years. You know, I've been around a lot of dogs, been around a lot of terriers. So I had a pretty good sense of what I was getting myself into. Mm. Um, but initially we were only intending on having 
Lizzie B, which is the, the puppy we got. The B mm. does stand for Borden. Um, <laughs> and uh, then our second little one named Jinx, the little girl, uh, came along. And with two female terriers only four months apart, that opened up a whole other world of behavioral issues, some of them uh, more pronounced in terriers. So that started my personal um interest in learning all I could about uh, terrier behavior, behavior in general, uh, aggression in dogs. And then my students, I had noticed over the years that a, a lot of my students who would come to class with a terrier or a terrier mix would inevitably come and say, why doesn't my terrier behave like my neighbor's golden retriever <laughs> or the Labrador I had when I was a kid or, you know, they, they wanted this, this terrier um, to be more like some other breed of dog than like a terrier. Mm. And that also kind of a little light bulb went off in my head and I, I decided to start offering terrier only obedience classes because I realized how important it was um, for people to understand what it is they have mm -hmm. in a particular dog in terms of genetics and instincts. And so many people had not done their homework or they didn't really appreciate um, the the importance of what they had read about what a terrier yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, so it was, a, it was a combination of things. It was my own desire to um, help my Terriers, you know, live satisfying terrier lives without driving me crazy. <laughs> and, um, and also to help my, you know, hopefully help my students who had terriers at least appreciate what it is that, that they had brought into their homes for pets and hopefully then reduce the frustration that a lot of them seem to be experiencing. And so we developed our terrier-only class. I do a lecture class with no dogs the first night. Um, and we talk about the history of terriers. And I always do it specific to the breeds that, you know, I have in that particular class. Hmm. And I've actually had a few handlers over the years leave crying or become very upset with me when I point out, you know, like a Jack Russell Terrier, this breed was developed specifically to go to ground and harass the fox during the fox hunts. Mm -hmm. If the hound pack drove the fox to ground, the, the hounds would be called back. The terrier man would come forward. He would release a terrier, either a fox terrier or later the Jack Russell terriers, to go to ground. And that terrier was supposed to grab onto that fox and convince it that it needed to come back mm -hmm. above ground so that the hunt could continue. Mm -hmm. well, that's a killer instinct. And then later the jacks were used for uh, a lot for ratting and for other types of vermin. Um, but basically these are furry little killers. All terriers are that way. And I've had some people get very emotionally upset about that. Yeah. And it, that's not a judgment. It is what they are. And that's what makes them so fascinating. It's what makes them so plucky and fun. And so frustrating and all the things that they are, you know, are, are based in that purpose, that breed purpose. Um, but I've also had those same people. They all came back and, and they, they worked with their dog and they appreciated it after they processed it. Yeah. Um, yeah. so that's good. It's news, worked out it? really. Yeah. Yeah. It has. And then from the, 
from the lecture that kind of expanded and I did some talks with the terrier clubs and stuff. And then eventually it became, Hey, I'm going to pitch this to dog wise as a book because the need is really out there. And even folks that have owned terriers for years, uh, we see very few terriers competing in obedience uh, competitions here uh, in the States because people just assume a terrier can't be taught anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, they can, they can learn a lot if you teach them and respect them for what they are and teach them in a way that makes sense to them. Yeah, yeah. And now, I mean, I was going to say, presumably, tenacity can be a good thing if you know how to channel it, you know, and, and presumably there's quite an intelligent brain in a, in a terrier body. So how do we, how do we bring out the best in our terriers then? What do we need to know? Well, yes, it's tenacity, pluck, gameness, um, a very physical play style, extreme intelligence. Uh, I would put my, my Jack Russell's, uh, intelligence against my border collies intelligence any day of the week and border collies everybody thinks border collies are the smartest dog well there's lots of different kinds of intelligence yes um and our terriers are extremely intelligent problem solvers so we have all of these um these instinctive traits that have helped these guys survive sensitivity to motion when terriers do the little shuck and jive, you reach down to get your terrier when you call them to you. And, the, you know, a lot of them, they instinctively want to kind of move away. Well, if you think of that in the context of fighting another animal like their ancestors did, it makes sense. A terrier should move when anything moves toward it quickly mm-hmm. because that's self-preservation. You know, moving out of the way in case that thing moving quickly towards them is another animal trying to bite them and get away or hurt them. Um, so you have to think about in the context of what this breed, you know, what the terrier breeds used to do, which was fighting, killing other animals, and then channel that into more positive, um, positive uh, ways to help your dog understand what it is he needs to do to be a good family member. And, you know, appreciating that there's a certain amount of terrierness you will never, ever completely extinguish. And in my opinion, it would be somewhat cruel to try to completely extinguish those behaviors. So, for example, barking. This is a good example of how we can use our terrier instincts um, to help control and train our dogs not to just bark constantly at everything under the sun. Hmm. Terriers traditionally, if they went underground... Before the days of GPS collars, if the dog didn't give voice or bark mm. when it was fighting and working, if you think about it, if the dog then got hurt or got stuck when it was underground going after something, uh, the terrier who was up above would have no way to know where to dig to try to save the dog. Mm. So the dogs that worked silently, for the most part, if they got in trouble, they died. And they died underground. They didn't pass on their genes. Mm-hmm. dogs that did bark, if they did get in trouble, they could get, you know, somebody could dig them out from up top because they could hear them. And then so that dog lived to pass its genes on to future generations. So we have now <laughs> um, a pretty well-established trait in most of our terriers to be a little on what some people would call the yappy side. 
particularly they see a squirrel, they see a bunny, um, something, you know, moves quickly, it will incite them to bark. So that's, that's instinct. That's hardwired into our dogs. That's what they are. So at the same time, while that's normal, that isn't acceptable for most, you know, living situations where I live, neighbors would just have a fit if I were to allow my terriers to bark at will just whenever they wanted to for as long as they wanted to. So have to teach the dogs to turn that instinct back off. So one of the things that we do is we never try to completely extinguish it because it's natural. It's a knee-jerk response. Mm. But we say, okay, after a couple of seconds, before the dog gets too excited, then we redirect them. Okay, I see the squirrel. Yep, (laughs) let's go do something else. And that something else may be I offer the dog a tug toy and let him shake and kill it and take out his frustration and the fact that he can't get to that squirrel he can take that out on that tug toy. Mm. And if he's biting the tug toy, he's not barking. Can't do yes. this both at the same time. Or I will call him to me and maybe take him in the house and give him a treat or give him some loving or do something different with him to redirect him. I'm not really correcting him. And most people want to correct and yell at their dog and, you know, say, oh, don't do that. Well, that's not going to effectively... Uh, teach a terrier to stop doing something that is instinctive for him mm-hmm. to do. So we redirect them. Um, and every once in a while, for example, if my dog is barking at a squirrel, I'll let him bark a couple of barks, get it out of his system. Then I call him, say, okay, you know, time to be quiet. If I call him to me and he comes, his reward may be that I scoop him up and I run with him back over to where the squirrel is (laughs) and I let him bark a little bit longer at that squirrel before we go in. So he never knows if we're going to go hunt together. If he comes back to me, if he leaves that squirrel, quits barking, comes to me, maybe I will carry him up and hold him up even higher in the tree and let him (laughs) bark for a few more seconds. Or maybe inside or maybe we'll play with a toy so I'm using that intelligence that ability to sense patterns um, I'm using that to my advantage by being very unpredictable mm-hmm. and then I'm also using you know the terrier's instinct to kill the shake and kill you know when they play with toys it usually sounds ugly looks ugly <laughs> you know because that's their imaginary vermin that they're killing mm-hmm. um, I'll let my dog instinctively play for a few moments but again, with that tugging and that type of thing, I don't get excited. You know, if my dog growls a little bit and shakes, that's what terriers do. Yeah. But my terriers have also been taught that you have to be respectful of hands. And when the game is over, the game is over. Yeah. You know, I will end the game when I want to end the game. So we take all these different instincts and we use them in ways that help the dog behave. So say that I really train my dogs. Yes, my dogs do have a be quiet command, but for the most part, it's, it's more like managing and redirecting in an instinctual way. And the dogs respond so quickly to it. Um, and then there's not a big emotional to do for the dog or for me. Yeah. It just, it happens. The behavior changes. It changes in the direction I need it to change in so that my dog fits into the human world he lives in now. But at the same time, I'm letting my terrier be 
a little bit of a terrier. He gets to bark a little bit at a, at a squirrel running across the yard or up the tree. He gets to shake and kill a little bit with a toy. And he gets a lot of loving from me and a lot of physical praise and that type of thing that, that most terriers really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned they're, they're intelligent, but it's quite an independent intelligence. And I do like that approach that, you know, in, in the past, we've kind of, as you say, the border, border collie is sort of the height of intelligence or has been regarded as the height of intelligence and sort of the dogs that are less, less willing to obey unless there's something in it for them kind of thing has, have been looked at as less intelligent. And I do like this way of looking at the, the different kinds of intelligence that exist rather than saying that breed is more intelligent than that one. Um, so is that, that unpredictability of, of what, what reward you're going to give to the dog, is that part of helping them focus on you more? Yes, yes. And that is not, um, again, that's not uh, natural, if you will, for most terriers. They are independent. Mm-hmm. You know, I always laugh. I see the back end of my terrier <laughs> more than I see the front end because usually my terriers are going off to do something fun and I can come along if I want to. Um, and again, that goes back to their historic purpose. If a terrier could not go into a strange area that had never been in or between rocks or in a, in a strange barn or in a, in a fox den or something that had never been in before. If it couldn't go into these strange environments and problem solve and independently protect itself while attempting to harass or kill the, the prey animal that it's after, it wasn't going to survive. Mm-hmm. The dog, the terriers that survived were the terriers that would say, I know my job, get out of my way, I'm gone. Mm. And just go and do what they needed to do. So they're not like, for example, the retriever breeds. Again, very intelligent, but a different, a more biddable intelligence. Because the retrievers had to be taught to curb their instincts and wait for human direction to go do their job. Mm. Terriers needed to just be set down and let go because, you know, the terrier man couldn't go underground with the dog in the first place. So everything that we can do to become, I, I call it being more interesting than dirt in the <laughs> eyes of your terriers, um, that unpredictability uh, really does help our dogs learn to look to us for guidance, to look to us and to do what we ask of them even when that is contrary to maybe what they want to do at the moment. Um, and there are certainly challenges with that. Mm. Um, but when you're unpredictable and when you learn to use anything and everything your terrier wants as a potential cookie instead of just food, food is great. Food is great for teaching quick, you know, behaviors um, but once the dog knows it, you start offering all kinds of life rewards, if you will. Instead of those treats, you become so unpredictable and so valuable mm. that they, that in that little brain inside the your head starts thinking, hey, my person really is a benefit. I wonder what she's going to do next. Yeah. And you start getting that voluntary uh, attention, the kind of attention that you can't train and that relationship strengthen so you become a working team and these guys just can be phenomenal phenomenal teammates they really can but you have to convince them that 
you know, <laughs> sometimes you do know better than they do. <laughs> and, that, that you know, there's some value in, in paying attention to you. And with these guys, too, um, I am not an advocate of, of physically, you know, forcing or harming a dog to teach them something. Um, but it wouldn't work with these guys anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're tough little dogs. They're bred to be fighters. They're scrappy. Um, you're just going to get them excited. They're going to think they're playing with you anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it really being unpredictable really, really helps speed up the process. And it makes it more interesting, I think, for both the dog and the owner um, to train that way. Yeah. Which is always good, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You refer to a terrier bubble. And, and so you need to be aware of your terrier's bubble. What, what do you mean mm-hmm. by that? I define um, my dog's personal space. I think of it as a bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, every dog, every dog, just like every person, we all have that distance around ourselves um, that kind of defines where we start to get uncomfortable. Mm. When there's people approaching, for example, if you walk up to someone on the street uh, that you don't know, we typically don't, as humans, approach much more than arm's length. You know, yes. we can shake hands, but we don't get right up toe to toe. If someone comes toe to toe to us that we don't know, we tend to get just immediately uncomfortable. And our terriers, all dogs also have that uh, sense of personal space, and it's tends to be more pronounced in the terriers. Again, the working terriers, going back to the fact that they were used to kill other animals, they instinctively aren't real comfortable with things just rushing up and getting close in their face. Just boom, here I am. Mm-hmm. That tends to send off, you know, the barking, the growling, the snapping, the instinctive uh, self-protection behaviors in the terriers. And some terriers, for a number of reasons, have very large bubbles, um, meaning you may be walking down the street with your terrier, and if there's another dog, say, a block away, your dog start, your terrier starts to get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Other terriers may be very fine as long as there's maybe two feet between them and the other dogs. You know, they may be okay with that. Yeah. Get closer than two feet, then the instincts start kicking in and they get uncomfortable. So if you can figure out, if you have a dog that shows um, uh, shows fear, shows stress, when particularly when other dogs that they don't know come close, if you can kind of figure out how big your dog's bubble is, then you know how far out you need to be looking when you walk to keep your dog from getting anxious. So if your dog starts getting concerned if another dog is approaching and that bubble is about a block out, you need to be looking two blocks ahead as you walk. Mm-hmm. And if you see a dog approaching two blocks away, you have about a block to decide, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to turn around and go back the direction I came from so we never meet? Am I going to go across the street so I'm making more distance between myself and the other dog, you know, dog and owner as we pass? Um Am I going to have my dog sit and do some behaviors and keep him distracted while the other dog passes? What am I going to do? And you, you'll learn to look ahead and be more proactive and basically prevent the situation from ever starting in the first place. 
if your dog's bubble is a block out and you're staring at your feet <laughs> while you walk, um, you're going to have some really negative encounters. And again, the terrier intelligence, dogs in general, but terriers in particular, you'll fool them once, but you're not going to fool them again, meaning they have one bad encounter. They're going to start assuming the next encounter is also going to be bad, and they're going to have something to say about that and do about that. Mm-hmm. And so their behavior will, will actually escalate. So if you can identify how big your terrier's bubble is and also the size of the bubble based on the situation that your dog is in, it will vary. Some dogs are very tolerant of others coming up close if there are no leashes involved. Mm. Um, but if the terrier has a leash on, he may want dogs to stay away. One of my terriers is like that. If she's on leash, she has about a one-block bubble when we walk. Mm-hmm. If she's off leash, she'll let other dogs come very close to her, and she's absolutely comfortable and fine with that because she understands she can move around and she can run and she can do what she needs to do when she's off leash. Yeah. When she's on leash, she feels confined, and and uh, so she takes more of an offensive position because she knows she can't run away and move like she needs to move. So it will vary. Um, the size of the bubble will vary between situations, but a lot of bigger owners have found that a lot of their their difficulties with their dogs, particularly when walking them, um, are really, really minimized just by defining how much space does my dog need to stay comfortable, to stay focused on me, and then the owner protecting that bubble. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So get to know your dog is, is the trick, isn't it? Mm-hmm. What about the other, one of the other sort of, um, classic terrier behaviors, digging? Because again, from what you said, there's no point sort of saying, I'm not going to let my terrier dig. So how, how do you deal with that one? That one is kind of a combination of, hmm. um, exercise, <laughs> <laughs> because that's one of the things that I think a lot of dog owners, uh, myself included, is guilty of is not giving our dogs the exercise they truly, truly need, uh, especially if we live in an urban environment where we don't have access to open space to let them run. Um, but adequately exer- physically exercising the dogs will help diminish some of that digging behavior. Uh, just because digging can be simply a, a dog's way of saying, I'm bored, I need to burn off some steam. And so I'm going to dig because that's something that dogs do. Um, so increasing the amount of physical exercise the dog gets, I recommend a lot of my terrier owners that they can't run, that they buy an attachment for their bike and bike mm-hmm. their dog um, because most folks, you know, can ride a bike and you don't have to ride very fast, especially if you've got a small terrier. So increasing the exercise, managing where your dog can dig. So if you have (laughs) a prized flower garden, you might want to put up, you know, some kind of uh, fencing or something like that um, to discourage the dogs from being in there. A lot of terriers will actually mimic their owners. uh, And I discovered this with my male when I was building a brick patio I was digging and he was looking at me, and pretty soon he started digging along with me. And I, I really do believe he he thought we were playing some weird game <laughs> digging oh. in the dirt. 
Um, so, you know, you, you have to be careful when you plant freshly turned soil. Um, if you think about if you see a molehill, um, you know, animals that live underground, there's typically freshly turned soil around where their hole is. Uh, so that will attract the terrier's attention. So, you know, just kind of keeping them away from your freshly planted garden will help them from going and digging in there, um, providing them a place to dig. And hmm. this re- does require some vigilance. And and it's a little uh, frustrating sometimes dealing with owners who just want to shove their dog outside, have it go do its business. They expect it to exercise itself alone in the backyard mm-hmm. and then bring it in and they want it to behave. Well, a lot of these behaviors are a direct result of doing that with your dog. So if your dog's out bored in the backyard all by himself, he may very well start to dig. Um, but if you're out there with him and you see him starting to dig in a place he doesn't like, uh, consider an alternative place he can dig because, again, that's an instinctive behavior. So a plastic kitty swimming pool um, or a small horse tank, something that you can fill with some sand and dirt, Mm-hmm. And then bury something like a, a Kong toy, a stuffed toy, a bone. You go out there and actually bury something in there. And then you see your dog digging in the corner of the yard where you don't want him to dig. Ah, ah, come on, bud. Let's go. And lead him over and say, oh, yes. And kind of scratch around in the dirt and redirect him into a kitty swimming pool. Yeah. A couple of times of finding some really good, tasty treat somewhere in there chances are he's going to want to go there and that's going to become his preferred spot to dig. So if you have a digger, you know, that's, that's the way you approach it. Because again, we're never going to completely extinguish um, that instinct to dig. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's natural. And every once in a while, some folks have found out when they're terriers, especially if their terrier didn't dig before and all of a sudden starts digging, (laughs) Sometimes they, they actually have found they've had, oh, we had a mole or a gopher or a groundhog move into our yard and we didn't even know it. Um, um, so the dog is actually hunting, yeah, you yeah. know, and eliminating the uh, the yard pest eliminated the digging. Um, so, yeah, but redirecting it and letting them dig like that, too, in a place where pay for them to dig is also a great form of mental and physical exercise, too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like sort of nagging and just saying no, no, no will turn your terrier off from listening to you. Whereas, as you say, if you can redirect to an activity he's going to enjoy, that's the way to go, isn't it? Yeah. I, you know, our terriers are not, they're not dumb. <laughs> if, uh, you know, if, if we constantly just say no and we constantly shut off um, their ability to express themselves as what they are, which are hunters, killers, um, we're just going to frustrate them. Mm-hmm. And eventually that urge to bark, that urge to bite, that urge to dig, it is going to come out. I, you know, I always think of it like if I were put in a room and told that every time somebody comes in, I can't speak to them. I cannot talk, period. Mm-hmm. Quit talking. I would you know, probably forget that and try to talk. And then if somebody slapped me outside the head, I might be quiet for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, or somebody yells at me, I might shut up for a while. But eventually, my desire to talk is going to come out. And I am mm. just going to, you know, talk a mile a minute, no matter what the consequences. And it's the mm. same thing with our with our terror. 
if we bottle that up in them, if we punish them for being what they are, there's, it's still going to come out, but it's going to come out in some other direction. So maybe, yes, you could punish your dog, correct your dog, nag your dog into not digging in your backyard, and then you might come home someday and find, you know, a big chunk of your carpet <laughs> completely destroyed, <laughs> you know, they're going to dig. Um, yeah. So, you know, redirecting them, and that makes them positive relationship. It makes... Again, you are valuable to your dog because you become the gateway for the things that they want. So they turn to you more for guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stress levels for both you and the dog are much, much lower. And most people can instinctively redirect, um, appropriately redirect better than they can appropriately correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it just it it's just a much more positive way for the dog to be and you're you're taking care of them mentally too. You're still letting them be what they are, but you're letting them be what they are in an appropriate context in our world. Because it's very different. You know, we don't live on farms where we need these dogs to go out and kill all the rats so that the rats don't eat the grain that we need to turn into flour to put you know, to make into bread to put on our table so we have something to eat. Those days are long gone. Mm. Um but those instincts are so it's just a much kinder way, I think, to work in a in a quicker way, actually, to train our dogs to behave the way we want them to behave. Mm-hmm. Teaching them sit and down that that's relatively easy, and that's you teach them the same way as you would teach any other breed uh, to do that. But to really teach them how to be a positive family member, um, you know, it has its own challenges. Mm. And yet, that's for most pet dogs. You know, for for most dogs who are pet dogs they're not sort of a, a show dog or as you say a working dog these days that's what life is all about isn't it being um a, f- a fully functioning member of a family exactly mm. exactly and it breaks my heart because here uh, in part of the country that i live in we have unfortunately a lot of puppy mills in the mm. area that mass produce dogs um, and we're still somewhat of a rural environment here we've got a lot of farms and stuff we have just too many goodies in our state, uh, and the rest of it's pretty much agricultural. And when I go to our local humane society and walk through, you know, the, the adoption floor, inevitably there are more terrier breeds and terrier crosses there than any other breed mm-hmm. because people just don't understand them. And they're so darn cute, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, which is sometimes they're saving grace, but, you know, people will get them because they're so cute. Yes. Yeah. Or they've seen Wishbone on TV <laughs> and they have no appreciation uh, for mm. what they're getting themselves into. Mm. And I, then they end up giving them up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess in some ways they are a victim of their own cuteness in a way. And sort of they are, you know, if you look at a Jack Russell, it's a portable dog. It's little. You can pick it up. It's. It, I know there are different coat types, but, you know, there are a lot of the, mm-hmm. the smooth short coat um, Jack Russells. So in some ways people look just at the appearance of the dog and that, yeah, I could live with that. And they don't research the the history and, and the character of the breed, do they? No, and that's true of almost all of mm-hmm. the popular terrier breeds. Yeah, they're, they're, they're underarm dogs is what we call them because you scoop them up under your arm and away you can go. And, and so people think, well, I can control my dog since I can pick this dog up. <laughs> I don't really need to train it how to behave. <laughs> Well, if you pick up a really excited terrier 
who is, uh, you know, in, in instinctive mode and not really thinking very well, you can get hurt very badly by those same little dogs. Um, you know, but yeah, people just look at the, when you look at all the popular terrier breeds, which tend to be the smaller breeds, um, yeah, they're cute. They're feisty. They tend in general to be very healthy compared to some other breeds. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're just a nice size. Just scoop them up and away you go. So that does tempt a lot of people who really aren't prepared for everything else that comes along with that. Um, it tempts them into, into attempting to bring one of them into their homes. And then, uh, unfortunately, you know, tends to end poorly for a lot of these dogs. Mm-hmm. We have a very, very active, uh, terrier, all breed terrier rescue, um, in our group, in our area, as well as like a Jack Russell rescue and a, a little white dog, which is mostly Westie. Uh, West Highland White Terrier Rescue, and we just have so many terrier rescue groups here. It's really sad. Mm-hmm. So hopefully if, uh, you know, we can reach a few owners yeah. and help them appreciate what they have, then we can at least help keep a few terriers from having to go into rescue or worse. Mm-hmm. I know you sort of say, to, one of the messages you send out is sort of be realistic about the the training you can achieve, the level of training you can achieve with a terrier. But if someone's got a terrier, would you say that going to a training class is a worthwhile thing that will help both owner and and dog? Absolutely, if (laughs) trainer has experience and the trainer appreciates that you have a terrier. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I never make excuses for terriers. I don't make excuses for any breed because of what they are. Mm. You know, we can teach any dog that's not horribly uh, mentally damaged, you know, through abuse or through actual organic disease. Um, we can teach any breed of dog how to behave appropriately in our homes. Um, but how we teach it, how we reward it, how we interact with it, um, it can be very, very different depending on the breed. And there are a lot of folks out there that offer really great training classes who may have only owned, for example, golden retrievers. Mm-hmm. It's a very popular breed. It's a very biddable breed. It's a wonderful breed. Uh, and it's very popular in obedience circles here um, because it is so willing to please and easy to train. Well, living with a golden, I used to have curly-coated retrievers, very mm-hmm. similar. Um that's a very different experience and you can, you can, uh, drill a retriever sometimes, you know, repeat exercises. Yeah. A lot longer with, with that type of dog than you can with a terrier. Um, in general, you don't see, uh, the feistiness toward other dogs. You know, mm-hmm. retrievers generally don't, don't behave that way. Whereas a lot of terriers instinctively will, um, so if your your trainer isn't familiar with terriers and can't adapt the training that's on in the classroom to suit your terrier, then that class may actually do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. And by adapting, it may be just as simple as saying, okay, you know, we've got all of these other dogs that are happy to be around other dogs. They're all sitting four feet apart. But this terrier is very stressed. Do we have space to maybe give him 10 feet to work mm-hmm. in instead of four feet? You know, little things like that um, 
that can really make the difference between helping a terrier learn how to behave around other dogs and how to learn basic obedience skills or actually teaching your terrier to be even more fearful and concerned around other dogs. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if the, if the trainer has experience working with terriers and is a, able to be flexible, then absolutely I recommend that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely worthwhile to do the research, to talk to the trainer first, maybe even go and sit in class about the dog and mm-hmm. see what they do before signing your dog up for that. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great point and, and absolutely something people need to bear in mind. Um, where can people find out more about you online? Um, right now we have uh, our website, which is www.bonafidedogacademy.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is an About Us page. Um, I believe there's also an author bio and information about the book specifically uh, at dogwise.com. Mm-hmm. fantastic bookseller here. Um, those are the the two places that we have information, both about me and about uh, Bonafide Dog Academy and a little bit about terrier-centric dog training. Yeah, excellent. And I guess if people are close enough to you uh, in Nebraska, it's it's Omaha, isn't it? Yes. Yes, yeah. Um, they can come and visit. Um, otherwise, you know, do you sort of ever give advice online or via Facebook or anything? Um, actually I do. I hmm. do consultations. Um, and the way to contact me is through Bonafide Dog Academy. Um, my email is Dawn, D-A-W-N, at bonafidedogacademy.com. And in June, I have also been invited to participate in the online dog book club, um, as the featured author. And that club is sponsored through Dogwise. So I will be online first through the 15th of June. Um, I believe you can find more information about that at dogwise.com. And I'll be answering questions and we'll be discussing uh, all things terrier. I thought that was so informative. If you have a terrier and that's helped you, or you'd like further advice from Dawn, do get in touch. Dawn will be the featured author of the online book group dogread at yahoogroups.com for the first half of June, so you can access her there. And of course, we have all the relevant links on the Dogcast Radio site. We're hoping to talk to Dawn again later in the year about her second training manual, which will be aimed at sporting dogs. I can't wait. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. Terrier-type dogs have been around since ancient times, and as early as the Middle Ages, these breeds were portrayed by writers and painters. Hello, and welcome to the Dogcast Radio News Desk. I'm Kate. And I'm Nick. Sometimes dogs seem to know how to go for help, and that was the case when dog lover Debbie was returning from transporting a rescue dog and saw a large black dog standing in the middle of Interstate 29 in Missouri. Fearing the dog would be knocked over by the other vehicles on the road, she stopped her car and approached it, but it would not be coaxed into Debbie's car, and kept walking away and looking back at Debbie until she followed. The dog led her to a car that had been driven into a ditch and could not be seen from the road. 
It emerged that the dog, called Juno, had been travelling in the car when the driver fell asleep at the wheel, and without the dog attracting Debbie's attention, who knows how long the car and driver would have gone unnoticed. So, well done to Juno for raising the alarm, and well done to Debbie David for taking notice. We hear a lot of warnings about the pitfalls of buying a dog from a pet shop, but now a scientific study by Utah veterinarian Frank McMillan from the Best Friends Animal Society and a team of researchers at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia has provided evidence that the best way to buy a dog is from a reputable breeder. The owners of 413 store-bought puppies and 5,657 pups bought from a breeder filled in an online 100-question evaluation. All the dogs involved were pedigree and bought around the same age. The dogs bought from a pet shop received significantly less favourable scores than dogs bought from a breeder on 12 out of the 14 behaviourable variables measured. Pet store dogs did not score more favourably than breeder dogs in any behavioural category. Dogs obtained as puppies from pet stores had significantly greater aggression towards human family members, unfamiliar people and other dogs than those from breeders. They also had greater fear of other dogs, greater separation-related and toilet training problems. So the message is clearer than ever. Don't buy a dog from a shop. In Brisbane, Australia, dog owners were being urged to stay calm in the wake of reports that thieves were tagging fences to mark out houses with dogs that could be stolen. Similar reports have arisen in the UK without any evidence to support them, and in Brisbane, Lee Jeffries, a pet detective of over 20 years' experience, believes that fence tagging could well be a hoax spread by the internet. Worryingly, Lee thinks that rumours of fence tagging make people panic and actually waste the time of people like her who are searching for lost and stolen animals, as they tend to end up following false leads. Her concerns were shared by the RSPCA Chief Inspector of Operations, Daniel Young, who said that while people who feared their dogs had been stolen should contact authorities such as the RSPCA and Crime Stoppers, they should not spread rumours. Daniel also urged dog owners to ensure their properties were escape-proof and their dogs were microchipped and had identification tags on their collars. It's nice to know that all over the world there are people ready to help dogs when they need it most. In Cebu in the Philippines, a stray dog gave birth to a litter of puppies. When Gerald and Honey Jane Cabinetan spotted the mother with her pups, they were worried as they knew stray dogs in the area are feared and often treated harshly. The couple are members of the Cebu South Dog Club, a group that helps homeless and abandoned dogs in the province. And the group tried to move the dog, christened Sweetcher, but she kept taking her babies back to the spot she gave birth to them on. So the group decided to help Sweetcher in a different way, and they built a makeshift wooden shelter for the family right where Sweetcher insisted on being. The club is hoping to raise funds to build Sweetcher a stronger shelter and are appealing for potential adopters for when the pups are old enough to leave their mother. And we end with the tale of a dog called Banjo, whose story thankfully has a happy ending. Poodle Terrier cross puppy Banjo was tied to train tracks in the desert near Palm Springs last month, but eagle-eyed train crew spotted the dog and halted a freight train which might have injured or killed the dog. Banjo was taken in by a Riverside County shelter, and when word of the sad story got out, over 1,300 people volunteered to adopt him. Jeff and Louisa Moore got to take Banjo home to live happily with them and their Tibetan terrier, Lally, after they showed their devotion by visiting Banjo daily during his time at the shelter. We wish him the best of luck in his new home. 
And that's all from us on the Dogcast Radio News Desk. Goodbye. A terrier breed, the Wirefox Terrier, is the biggest winner of the Westminster Kennel Club's Best in Show Award, having won the show 13 times. We featured an interview with Sandy Pensinger about Tribal in episode 140, and I learned from Sandy that Tribal had arrived in the UK, with classes and workshops in the dog sport starting up around the country. To find out more, I went to talk to Sarah Hursthouse, who runs Dog School. First, we had a quick reminder of what tribal is. Well, it's a, a sport that originated in 2003, and mm. it's a competitive dog sport. It's just a different sport to play with your dogs. The idea of it is that the dog uses its nose and shoulders, all shoulders, to push um, eight large exercise balls into a goal. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a good way to use teamwork with your dog and it's it, it uses basically classic sort of obedience and herding cues so yeah. herding dogs particularly i bet uh, yes <laughs> have a, a bit of an advantage i would say although all breeds can, can do yeah it. now you saying herding i've got a collie mm-hmm. my collie is like a football killer you know yeah. <laughs> he just bursts them so is that one of the things you have to address with them sort of not you don't put your teeth on the ball Yes, definitely. And and starting to train it, you do it very slowly and and not necessarily even introducing the ball Mm. at first. Remember, collies are chase animals. What they like about bulls is the chase, the running. So when we start tri-ball and we introduce the ball, the ball is just a still object and we actually teach them just to push it with their nose. So Mm. just a gentle nose touch to start and then we build up there. We do it all with clicker training, so it's very reward-based. Yeah. Now... It sounds like a great sport to me because, as you said, any dog can have a go, um, you know, so it's, it's very open, as, mm-hmm. as rally has been that, that's come, you know, but even more so, it seems, with this because there's, there's less equipment. Yeah. I mean, what, basically, what equipment do you, do you need to start with uh, trying Well, to... if you were starting at home and you wanted just to, to have a go at training mm. a little bit yourself at home, you literally need one ball, um, you need a clicker. Mm. And that's about it, really. Yeah. Um, and the, and the balls are like the big the fitness. Yeah, the big balls, gym exercise balls that you can yeah. pick up anywhere for about seven or eight pounds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's all you need. But obviously, um, the sport needs a goal mouth, a marked out area, um, eight gym balls. Yeah. You know, it, to play the game, if you like. Yeah. Uh, we also use a large um, stick, a target stick yeah. that we we help the balls into the actual goal with that yeah um so no not much equipment really when you compare it to say agility which yeah you know, i do as well and takes forever to set up agility <laughs> courses so. and it's expensive as well yeah, isn't it yeah definitely. so for perhaps an older dog or you know a bit of a laid back dog tribal is going to work quite well for them isn't it yes there's there's no real sort of physical stress on them as such um you know, it's not as high energy as agility or flyball yeah. or anything like yeah. that. So if you've got a laid-back dog, or perhaps if you've got a dog who's older or maybe had an injury so that you want something a little bit calmer, then um, tri-ball is ideal for that. Yeah. Also, there's no real physical stress on the handler as well. Yeah. Because obviously agility, yeah. a lot of running around, flyball, uh, still a, quite a lot of running yeah. around. So obviously yeah. tri-ball is a bit more... Um, yeah, more at my street. Yes. <laughs> For a laid-back handler. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, now, I guess, as with most dog sports, if you can find a trainer or a club or whatever, you're going to have some support there, and that's going to be an easier way for you and the dog to pick it up. Yes, definitely, yeah. because it's, uh, you know, introduces you to the sport, 
um, and you're going to learn these techniques of, of how to do it properly. You know, you've got to take it slowly and learn each element of it properly yeah. before you can put it all together. Yeah, so you don't just send the dog out with the no, weights. No, I mean, yeah. I've got a dog. One of my colleagues loves actually pushing a ball around with his nose. Yeah. Um, but with him, I'm going to have to sort of break it down and just bring it back a little bit, yeah. really, because otherwise he'd just be wildly pushing the ball. <laughs> he'd be out there pushing it around yeah. all day going, yeah. this is great. Yeah, this is great fun. <laughs> so it's got to be obviously more controlled than that. Yeah. So that's the skill, really. Um, and very much like teaching dogs to herd sheep. That, that's the yeah. idea, really. You send them out the other side of the ball and they push the ball towards yeah. you. So it's yeah. very much like uh, sheep herding. Really. Yeah. So... Uh, Sadly and, and happily, it is a sport that border collies, who are going to be the ones who are going to be needing that extra mm, um, yeah. exercise, mental and, and physical, they are going to have a bit of an advantage there because they do naturally seem to oppose you, don't they? If you yes. walk around a tennis ball, yeah. they go to the other side. Yes. So yeah. that's going to be a yeah, good aim, isn't it? Yeah. That, that's one of the skills we teach anyway is mm. positioning. So that the dog does always stay in front of you with the ball in between, basically. So wherever you move, they stay facing you. Yeah, collies you know do tend to have that ability obviously yeah. the sheep herding instinct is yeah. in there i took one of my dogs uh, a couple of months ago actually on a sheep dog training yeah day, and he'd yeah. never seen sheep before in his life and was a complete natural and just rounded them up brought them in it, was it really is ingrained yeah. isn't yeah. it so yeah. that that um instinct that they have will definitely give them the edge in, in something yeah. like this but like you say you can teach it to to any breed of yeah them. Yeah, yeah. So where did you spot tribal? I just spotted it on Facebook. I just saw yeah. somebody talking about it on Facebook and was intrigued and looked it up and thought, wow, that sounds great. Mm. Watched a few videos and thought, I think I need to do that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. started doing a bit with my own dogs to mm. get a feel of it and um, decided to set up the class. Obviously, I've been running dog school uh, training for, for years now, doing obedience training and agility and fly ball, etc. So yeah. I thought it would be nice to bring something new to the area, yeah really. yeah because uh, most of the other dog sports with the exception of rally which mm. is relatively new mm. have been around a long time so yeah. it is exciting to yeah. find something yeah. new oh, isn't it's it? brand yeah. new. nobody's heard of it mm. i mean i do fly ball a lot as i said before and, and surprisingly not many people have heard of that unless mm. you're actually involved in it you know? yeah it's amazing yeah. how many people don't know what fly ball is um but tribal yeah nobody has a clue really what mm. it is so it's all very new and yeah. quite exciting really to have something yeah. new to do yeah you know? So you've been explaining a lot, I imagine, about what it, yes, what it is. Yeah, everybody's asking, what's that? Yeah, yeah. So now it is relative, well, it's very, very new to the UK, really. And so it's going to be quite difficult in a way for people to find a trainer or a club. But I think it will catch on. Yeah, so for people in the UK who you know want to try this out with their dog, what would your advice be? Well, it's to contact the British Tribal Club. Mm. Um, and they have a list of... of classes throughout the UK so obviously that list is going up all the time as yeah. those new classes are opening so they're um, the people to contact really and they do have a website or the Facebook page seems to actually be more utilised the Facebook mm. page than the website so <laughs> Facebook um, is yeah. taking <laughs> so if you go on there you can see mm. the list of, of clubs um, in your local area and obviously if you're involved with a dog training club why not settle one of your own? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. And, I mean, for people who haven't seen Tribal, it can be a bit difficult to envisage. There are videos on YouTube. There's on YouTube, lots and lots of yeah. videos on YouTube, yeah. yeah. Well, actually watching um, competitions over in America, you know, so you can see how it's done properly. But then there's also a lot of videos on there of how to break it down and how to train um, yeah. 
all the different um, elements of it, if you like. The only confusing thing for people, I would say, if they're going on there is there's lots of people using lots of different methods, so they probably yeah. think, well, <laughs> what on earth, you know, which one shall I use? Which is a benefit, obviously, of going to a class, because there'll be a definitive plan of how you're going to do it, really. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, there's plenty of information out there if you look for it. Yeah. And if I'm going to bring my dog for classes, what previous training does he need to have had? The only thing, really, we like dogs to have a bit of basic obedience. Mm. Um, they will be working um, in an arena with other dogs and they would need to be off their leads. So mm. they'll be working in a space with their handler, if you like, um, but there will be other dogs around on the lead. So, we, you know, it's got to be dogs who will stay with their handler and not do a lap of honour around the <laughs> yes. arena. Go off on a meet and greet. I'm sure that'll happen sometimes, you know, as it always does. But generally, we like the dogs to have a good recall and, and be able to work, you know, have some focus on their owner. Yeah, yeah. Of course, this sort of thing helps improve that. So we're not looking for obedience champions. We've just got a bit of basic. Yeah, and as you say, it's pretty easy to go and do some homework because all you need is a board and you can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you, Sarah? Well, I run Dog School. We're based in Allsager in South Cheshire. Our website is www.dogschool.co.uk. Brilliant. What can people find there? Lots of information about our introduction to tribal classes, as well as all of the other things we do, agility, flyball, obedience training, puppy classes, and one-to-one behavioural work. Well, if you fancy finding out more about the newest dog sport in the UK, you can visit the British Tribal Club at tribal.co.uk, or you can visit their Facebook page. And we have all those links, as well as Sarah's Dog School website, on the Dogcast Radio site. If you and your dog are already enjoying Tribal, in the UK or elsewhere, we'd love to hear from you. It sometimes takes days, even weeks, before a dog's nerves tire. In the case of terriers, it can run into months. E.B. White That's about it for this time. In the next show, we'll be talking to Cathy and Joe Connolly about their incredibly useful book, If I Should Die Before My Dog and we'll have vital advice from canine first aid expert Kerry Rhodes, as well as an extract from her book, Roads to Recovery, Doggy Style. So until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on Julie at dogcastradio.com When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. Owner, every time a bell rings, my dog goes into a corner. Trainer, that's okay, he's a boxer.